to 15. Somebody asked me recently, how, how much longer do you think we have in John? I have no idea. Uh, I was supposed to preach more verses than this this Sunday, but there's too, min- too much good stuff in these verses. So we will be in John as long as it takes until we finish. John chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 4. I hope you'll follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask for illumination now. We pray that the Holy Spirit would open our minds to understand the word of God, that he would soften our hearts to believe and obey, and that he would loosen our tongues, Father, to declare what you have done in Jesus Christ. We pray for the Holy Spirit's ministry among us today, that through your word, we would bear fruit to the glory of Christ. Father, please keep me from error. Please use this time to edify your church and to build us up so that each of us, Father, are equipped more and more to use the gifts of grace that you have given so that the body of Christ grows so that the lost is evangelized, and ultimately so that the glory of Christ covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name, confident that you hear us. Amen. Since the earliest days of the church, Christians have confessed our faith in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Scripture teaches... And we confess that the one God eternally exists in three persons. Those persons are distinct. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit. Those persons are distinct, yet each person within the Godhead possesses the fullness of deity within himself. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. This is the mystery of the Trinity. One God eternally existing in three persons. And the church has confessed this truth since our earliest days. Because apart from the triune God, there there is no Christianity. 
During the 20th century, however, it became somewhat common for people to say that the Holy Spirit was the forgotten member of the Trinity. Perhaps this was due to the rise of of Pentecostalism in the 20th century, which advocated for the Holy Spirit in excessive ways. But this claim of the forgotten spirit was not exclusive to charismatic theology. Roman Catholic theologians, for example, also began to say the same thing, that the Holy Spirit has been overlooked. Even some evangelical theologians chimed in, asking the question, whatever happened to the Holy Spirit? And so it became something of an agreed-upon fact within 20th century church life that the Holy Spirit is the forgotten member of the Trinity, that He has been overlooked. Is that true? Is that true? Has the Holy Spirit been forgotten by the church? Has, has something been missing for centuries, something that only now has been recovered by the so-called spirit-filled era of the, of the 20th century? Is that true? Friends, I'll contend that that common claim is actually misguided. It's not so much that the Holy Spirit has been forgotten. It's more the case that He has been misunderstood. The Holy Spirit's been misunderstood. Christians, it seems, aren't quite sure how the Spirit works or what He comes to do. I mean, is the Spirit's main job to do miracles? Has the Holy Spirit come to fill Christians with supernatural power? What exactly does the Spirit do? Confusion, more than neglect, appears to be the church's problem. Thankfully, our passage in John 16 provides some foundational teaching on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus refers to the Helper in John four times, and this is the last of those four references to the Helper. And in this passage, Jesus tells us the Holy Spirit's primary job. What has the Spirit come to do? Verse 14 is the answer. He will glorify me, Jesus says. Friends, that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. His presence, His power, His testimony, all that the Spirit does is for the purpose of glorifying the Son. Verse 14 is the Holy Spirit's mission statement. He will glorify the Son. That's His primary task. Now, does that mean the Spirit does nothing else in the church? No. No, not at all. The Spirit causes Christians to grow in holiness. The Spirit bears fruit in and through the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, even interceding for us when we don't know how to pray on our own. The Spirit does all of those things. And yet, in each of those ministries... The Holy Spirit is working to glorify the Son. Why does the Spirit work to make you more holy? So that you will look like Jesus and bring glory to His name. Why does the Holy Spirit help you when you're weak and even intercede for you in prayer when you don't know how to pray? Why does the Spirit do that? So that the world will know there's a merciful and faithful high priest, Jesus Christ, whose blood is able to bring even weak believers into the presence of God. You see, in all of his other ministries, he still has this one ministry, which is to glorify the Son. Most fundamentally, 
This is the Spirit's work in the world. Not the miraculous, not supernatural power, not mysterious revelations disconnected from the Bible. The Spirit works to glorify the Son. That's His job. Now, on some level, I just told you the whole sermon. That's the main point of this passage. I just gave you the whole sermon in that opening. But as with every text in the Bible, there's always more to see, and that's true in John 16. So this is what we're going to do for the rest of the morning. We're going to take that main point, the Spirit's ministry is to glorify the Son. That's the main point. We're going to break that down a bit further. Yes, the Spirit glorifies the Son, but how specifically does He do that? What ways does He glorify the Son? That's what we're going to think about today. And there are three ways that Jesus gives us in this passage. Three ways that the Spirit brings glory to the Son. That's where we're going. Let's consider each one of them in more detail. The first is in verses 4 to 7. The Spirit's presence proclaims Christ's finished work. That's the first way. The Spirit's presence proclaims Christ's finished work. Verse 4 reminds us that Jesus' departure is imminent. That's why he's preparing his disciples, because he's going again to the Father. And that thought of Jesus' departure fills the disciples with sorrow. Jesus addresses this in verses 5 and 6. Listen again. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me where you are going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. It's an interesting statement from Jesus. He says that no one asks him where he is going, but Peter asked essentially that very question in chapter 13. So what does Jesus mean when he says no one asks him where he is going? Well, the key, it seems, is the sorrow that the disciples feel in verse 6. As Jesus talks about his departure, the disciples are overcome with sadness. So much so that their minds become a bit clouded. They're not thinking straight. Or it would be better to say they're not thinking in line with Jesus' teaching. Even back in chapter 13, when Peter asked Jesus where he was going, Peter was not asking with the right perspective. Do you you remember Peter's question? He asked Jesus where he was going because Peter wanted to prove that he was willing to go die with Jesus too. So Peter was boastful. He didn't ask with genuine understanding. And that's what Jesus means here in verses 5 and 6. The disciples' sorrow has clouded their thinking. They are so caught up in what Jesus' departure means for them that they fail to see what God is doing in that moment. Their sorrow is like a fog. It keeps them from seeing God's work. And Jesus makes this very point in verse 7. Look at how he directs the disciples away from their sorrow and toward God's work in the Spirit. Look at verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, it sounds strange to say that it's better for the disciples that Jesus leaves. That sounds strange to us. 
But it's only strange if your thinking is confined to the present. If you're only thinking about today, then yeah, it sounds bad that Jesus is going to leave. But if you zoom out and you think about Jesus' departure in the scope of the whole storyline of the Bible, then you'll see why it's to your advantage that Jesus goes. Here's, here's what I mean. In the Old Testament, God promised that one day He would pour out His Spirit on all of His people. Joel chapter 2. And the outpouring of that Spirit would indicate that God had established a new covenant. Jeremiah 31. And in this new covenant, all of God's people would know the Lord from the least to the greatest. How? Why? Because the Spirit would write God's instruction upon the hearts of His people. Now, within the Old Testament, that new covenant promise is arguably the the, the pinnacle of Old Testament hope. It's the highest hope of the Old Testament. A new covenant. This would be God's great remedy for His wayward people. A new covenant where the Spirit of God writes the Word of God upon the hearts of the people of God so that they follow Him. Now, connect that new covenant promise with Jesus' departure. If the Spirit only comes after Jesus leaves, then that means Jesus' death is the beginning of that new covenant. His death is the new covenant sacrifice. Every every covenant is sealed with a a sacrifice. Jesus' death is the new covenant sacrifice sealed in His blood. His resurrection uh, signals that that New covenant is eternally effective. Jesus lives never to die again. And his ascension prompts the outpouring of the Spirit. This is why it's better. This is why it's better that Jesus leave. Because it means that the new covenant has come. That God has kept his word. And it's confirmed through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The disciples are thinking about today. Jesus says, now zoom out. Think about the whole story of God's word. And you'll see why it's good that I go. So even though Jesus is leaving, the disciples are not going to be alone. They're going to have the Holy Spirit of God. And through the Holy Spirit, they will have direct access to the Father. Jesus' sacrifice opens the way into God's presence. And the Holy Spirit will embolden the disciples to enter. The Holy Spirit will even help the disciples know where Jesus is going. And how they can follow Him there. So so do you see the blessing that Jesus is is trying to unfold for them here? His departure is not the end. It's the beginning. The sorrow of the present is soon going to turn to joy inexpressible and full of glory. Even the glory of the new covenant. The presence of the Holy Spirit then, the gift of the Holy Spirit, is not a lesser spiritual benefit. It's the greatest spiritual blessing of all. Access to God through the sacrifice of His Son in the power of His Spirit. And and this blessing of the Spirit applies to us as well. Verse 7 should give us the correct frame of reference when we think about our lives in the world. I know it can be easy sometimes to read the Bible and think, man, I wish I lived in the disciples' times. They had so many more blessings than we did. They saw stuff that was so much better than what we saw. You ever think that way? I mean, I have. If the disciples were here, though, they would say the opposite. 
The disciples would tell us that now is the time of great spiritual blessing. The disciples would tell us that today is the fulfillment of what God has promised. This era of the Holy Spirit is not a lesser spiritual age. It's the pinnacle of what God is doing. It's the beginning of the new creation. Breaking into today. God could not give us a greater gift, friends. He could not give us a greater gift. And therefore, instead of being filled with sorrow over the fact that the world is broken and Christ has departed and we're waiting for Him to return, instead of being filled with sorrow over those things, we ought to be bold. We ought to be bold in our lives and in our ministry. For we have the Spirit of God. We ought to be bold in prayer since Christ has opened the way through His blood. If you want to be involved more in the life and ministry of Fisherville and you're not currently coming to our Wednesday night prayer service, you should come. Because when we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, we're asking God to do what only He can do. We ought to be bold in prayer. We ought to be bold in discipleship. Since the Spirit has been poured out to gather God's elect from the corners of the earth. We ought to be bold in hope. Since the Spirit's present ministry indicates that the new creation has already come. It's already dawned. It's not here in fullness, but it's already dawned in Jesus Christ. We ought to be bold in hope. The world can do its worst. And the Christian would look at the world's worst and say, that's nothing compared to the finished work of Christ. We have the Spirit of God. So it's true that we didn't get to see the Lord in flesh and blood. We didn't get to walk on the shores of Galilee. We didn't see Him raise Lazarus from the dead. It's true we didn't see any of those things. But we are in no way shortchanged, brothers and sisters. We are in no way shortchanged. We've received the fullness of God's Spirit. And the Spirit proclaims to us that Christ's work has finished. The new creation has dawned. And for that, we give glory to Jesus by being bold. That's the first way the Spirit glorifies the Son. The second way the Spirit glorifies the Son is in verses 8 to 11. The Spirit's work extends Jesus' earthly ministry. The Spirit's work extends Jesus' earthly ministry. If you remember last week's passage, we noted that the world in John refers to the realm of unbelief. The world lies in darkness, and that darkness is evidenced most clearly in the rejection of Christ. So if the Spirit comes into that world, what does the Spirit do in a world of unbelief and darkness? How does the Spirit interact with that world? Jesus tells us, verse 8, And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Friends, the key word in verse 8 is right what you think it would be. It's the word conviction. That's the Spirit's ministry in the world. He brings conviction. The idea is to expose guilt in order to foster repentance. Expose guilt in order to foster repentance. Both of those actions are important. The Spirit exposes the world's guilt so that the foolishness of unbelief is shown to be shameful and deserving of God's judgment. But that exposure is not the end of conviction. The Spirit exposes guilt in order to foster repentance. This is the difference between conviction and condemnation. Condemnation has punishment as the goal. 
Conviction has change as the goal through repentance. In that sense, the sending of the Spirit to convict the world, the sending of the Spirit to convict the world of its unbelief is actually a display of God's mercy. The world hates God. The world hates God. And yet, God does not return the world's hatred in kind. I had one of my professors say one time, the most stunning thing of the Bible is that there's a Genesis chapter 4. <laughs> like, why didn't God just end it? The world hates God, and God does not return the, world hatred, the world's hatred. Instead, he gives the world mercy. Mercy. He sends the Spirit to convict the world, exposing its guilt and leading people to repentance. Into the darkness, God sends the Spirit of God. And through conviction, the Spirit leads sinners to repentance. It's it's mercy. Mercy. That means conviction in my life and yours is mercy too, by the way. So we've defined the Spirit's work of conviction. That's his job, verse 8. But you'll also notice that Jesus identifies three specific areas where the Spirit convicts the world. You see that? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then the following verses, 9 to 11, expand on each each area respectively. So the question is, what does the Spirit's conviction look like in those individual areas that Jesus lays out? And full disclosure, that's a really hard interpretive question. Verses 9 to 11 are, pr- are pretty difficult, uh, particularly verses 10 and 11. So we're going to slow down here for a moment, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to tell you as clearly as I can how I read those verses. And if you read them differently, then you can talk to one of the other elders later. That's a joke. You can talk to me. I don't mind. So I'm going to try to slow down here and tell you how I read these verses And the goal is that by the end of verse 11, I want us to see the connection between the Spirit's conviction and Jesus' ministry of the gospel. So we're going to just slow down for a minute and think about 9, 10, and 11 in order. First of all, verse 9, the Spirit convicts the world of its chief sin, rejecting Jesus as the Christ. So John uh, has been very clear That the light has come into the world, but the world loves darkness more than the light. In a way, this is the sin of sins. The rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. It is the sin of sins. So the Spirit's work of conviction focuses on precisely this point. Look at verse 9. Because they do not believe in me, Jesus says. So fundamentally, this is how the Spirit convicts the world. By calling men and women to repent of their unbelief and trust in Jesus Christ. So that's verse 9. The Spirit convicts the world of its chief sin, which is the rejection of Jesus. Next, verse 10. The Spirit convicts the world of its misguided righteousness. One of the sobering aspects of Jesus' ministry is how Israel's religious leaders believed they were right to reject him. The the Pharisees, for example, considered their opposition to Jesus as evidence of their righteousness. Look how holy we are. 
we're, we're opposing that pretend Messiah. We must be righteous. But in reality, it was Jesus who was righteous, not the religious leaders. This is part of what Jesus' resurrection revealed. As Jesus ascends again to heaven, to the right hand of God, the conclusion is inescapable. It's not the world who's righteous, it's Jesus. This is what Jesus means in verse 10 when he says, Because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Jesus' resurrection and ascension are the proof, so to speak, that only Jesus is righteous, that the world is unrighteous. So, the Spirit comes, according to Jesus, to convict the world of its misguided righteousness. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is intended to show us that we are not righteous enough to open the way to God. Only Jesus is. Even our religious actions, like those of the Pharisees, are not righteous enough to save us. Only Jesus' righteousness, the very righteousness that the world rejected in name of its own righteousness, only Jesus' righteousness is able to save sinners. This is how the Spirit convicts the world. By showing us that we cannot save ourselves, that our righteousness is filthy rags, that only Jesus' righteousness can redeem. That's what it means, verse 10, that the Spirit convicts the world of its misguided righteousness. Okay, verse 11 now. The Spirit convicts the world of its false judgment. Sin, righteousness, judgment. You may remember back in chapter 7, Jesus told the Jews not to judge based on appearances, but to judge with right judgment. You remember that? Jesus' point was that their judgment of Him was not in line with the truth. Their judgment was misguided. Why? Because they had been deceived by the father of lies. Their eyes had been blinded to the truth. So when the Spirit comes, Jesus says, He will convict the world of this misguided judgment. He will convict the world of its blind judgment even. And this work of conviction is possible, verse 11, because the ruler of this world is judged, Jesus says. Jesus is looking ahead to the cross as though it's already a finished event. And the cross is the disarming of the powers and principalities of this age. The resurrection accomplished many things. And one of those things was the breaking of Satan's power. Satan's defeat is sealed. And it has been sealed since Resurrection Sunday. And that means the evil one will not blind the world forever. Through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the eyes of sinners will be opened to see that their judgment of Christ was wrong. That that their conclusion about Jesus was misguided and deceived. I mean, salvation, in a sense, is the grace of God bringing sinners to see that their previous conclusions about Jesus were damnable. And that only the truth about Jesus can save them. That's the Spirit's ministry of conviction when it comes to judgment. That Jesus is the Son of God. That salvation is found only through faith in Him. This is the Holy Spirit's work. He convicts the world of its false judgment so that sinners' eyes are opened to see the truth. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. So let's sum up these last few few minutes because it is a lot. Let's sum these up. In what areas does the Spirit convict the world? He convicts the world of sin, 
that it is foolish to reject Christ. He convicts the world of righteousness, that our righteousness is completely unable to save us, and therefore we need Jesus' righteousness. And he convicts the world of judgment, that on our own we are blinded by Satan, but through the Spirit we come to see the right judgment about Jesus. Friends, in each of those areas, sin, righteousness, and judgment, in each of those areas, where is the Spirit's conviction leading sinners? Answer, He's leading them to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Though Jesus has departed the earth, His ministry is extended now through the Holy Spirit. Just as Jesus called people out of darkness, so also the Holy Spirit comes into the world to call sinners out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved Son in whom they have redemption, the forgiveness of their sins. Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the the hands and feet and preaching of Jesus are extended out into the lost and dying world. The Spirit is leading sinners to Jesus. And and friends, that ministry has now come down to us in the church. As people indwelt by the Spirit, this is what we have been called to do as well. To take the truth of Christ's ministry in the power of the Spirit out into the world. That is Spirit-filled ministry. If you want to know what Spirit-filled ministry is, this is it. It's when a church prayerfully and humbly devotes all of its resources, all of its energy, all of its gifts to the work of the gospel. The work of making disciples. By the Spirit, we call people out of darkness through faith in Christ. And by the Spirit, we teach them to obey Jesus by faith. The Great Commission, in other words, is Spirit-filled ministry. I'm spending so much time on this because of how easy it is for churches to either get distracted or disheartened in the mission. It's easy to get distracted as a church and think that we need something new, something powerful, something more, something cutting edge to tap into the Holy Spirit's work. I mean, if you want to make a career in the Christian publishing sphere, write books every year about the new technique in ministry. You'll sell a bunch of them. Because churches are distracted, thinking we need something else. It's equally easy to get disheartened because, newsflash, discipleship is slow. It takes a long time to help someone look more like Jesus. And we want something quick, don't we? And so when discipleship goes slow, we get disheartened. It's easy to become distracted. It's easy to become disheartened. But friends, this is the realm of the Holy Spirit's ministry in the world through churches that are relentlessly engaged in the Great Commission. This is how the Spirit accomplishes His work of conviction as we faithfully evangelize our unbelieving neighbor or as we patiently teach a fellow believer how to read the Bible. Or as we disciple someone in how to pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Or as we encourage the church member enduring a significant season of trial. I know that none of those actions on their own is going to generate a lot of attention. Not going to get any headlines. 
And I know that in the moment, those things feel pretty small and probably insignificant. But please hear me. That's where the Holy Spirit is working. That's where He's working. His conviction is carried into the world through churches committed to making disciples. Through church members committed to making disciples. The Great Commission is the realm of Spirit-filled ministry. That's what I'm trying to get us to see. The Holy Spirit convicts the world, and that means the Great Commission is the realm of His work. And when we relentlessly pursue that kind of mission, we are, in the power of the Spirit, extending the ministry of Christ into the world for the salvation of the lost as a display of God's mercy. That's the second way the Spirit glorifies the Son. He extends His ministry. Let's look now at the third way the Spirit glorifies the Son from verses 12 and 13. The Spirit's testimony preserves Jesus' authoritative word. The Spirit's testimony preserves Jesus' authoritative word. Jesus returns to the necessity of His death and resurrection in verse 12. You look there with me. He says that he has many things to say to the disciples, but they cannot bear them now. His point is not that the disciples are mentally unable to comprehend what he's going to say. Rather, his point is about the Spirit. They need the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to fully understand what's about to happen at uh, Calvary. They need the Spirit to help them understand. So in verse 13... Jesus looks ahead to how the Spirit will lead the disciples into that full understanding of the truth. Look again, verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, we've learned in John's Gospel that Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. He reveals what God is like. We've also learned that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no divine truth apart from Jesus. And there is no greater truth than Jesus. So, when Jesus speaks of the Spirit guiding disciples into all the truth, He means the Spirit will help them understand who Jesus is and what He he accomplishes at the cross. This is extremely significant, friends. So much of our misunderstanding about the Holy Spirit starts right here. This is extremely significant. The Spirit does not lead disciples into greater truth beyond the gospel. There is no greater truth beyond the gospel. The Spirit leads disciples into a more complete understanding of who Jesus is and what He's done. A deeper understanding of that gospel. It's not truth beyond Christ. It's going deeper in the truth that's only in Christ. Think of how this plays out in John. If you just read through the book, you'll see how this plays out. The disciples don't always understand what Jesus is talking about, do they? Even when he says very clear things like, I'm going to die, they're like, what does that mean? Even when he tells them where he is going, they say, where are you going? He's like, I just told you. They don't always understand what Jesus is saying. But in each of those instances, the deficiency doesn't lie with Jesus. He's perfectly clear. He's the true word of God. The deficiency lies in the disciples. 
they need a more complete understanding. And according to verse 13, that's what the Spirit comes to give them. He will guide them into all the truth. Not the truth beyond Jesus, but a deeper understanding of the truth that is in Jesus. Now, in in the context of John, this work of the Spirit has a particular application to the 11 disciples. They're the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and ministry, and so they are going to be responsible to record the truth of the gospel in the New Testament Scriptures. So, most immediately, verse 13 applies to the disciples, the apostles, in a unique way as they were used by God to write the scriptures of the New Testament, and it applies to them in a unique way. None of us are going to be apostles. But that unique application does have some connection with us. And it has to do with the centrality of the Word of God. The Spirit, follow, follow the reasoning here. The Spirit preserved the authoritative Word of Christ in the writings of the New Testament. And that means the Scripture is the place of the Holy Spirit's powerful testimony in our day. So if we want to tap into the Spirit's power, where do we turn? To Scripture. If we long to see the Spirit work in a mighty way in our church, what should we prioritize? The Scripture. If we want to see people's lives bear fruit in the Holy Spirit, what should we give them? The Scripture. Do you see the connection? In God's economy, the Spirit and the Word always work together. For it's through the Word that the Spirit gives testimony to the Son. In God's economy, Spirit and Word always go together. This is a much needed correction in our day. Much needed. You don't have to spend a lot of time around, uh, around churches before you hear someone talk about the need for something new. Or something quote-unquote Of the Spirit. But what's interesting is how often that thinking leads churches away from Scripture, not towards Scripture. It's really ironic. In the name of spiritual power, churches distance themselves from the place where that power is most often found the authoritative Word of Christ in the New Testament. So I'm saying this not because I'm concerned Fisherville is drifting away from the centrality of the Bible. By God's grace, we're not. Rather, I say this to head off what I know is a common temptation for churches. It's the temptation to take the Bible for granted. It's a temptation to take the scriptures for granted and begin to think that we need something else in order to get the Holy Spirit's power. We don't. So I'm saying this now to just head off the temptation that I know is going to come. Let's be mindful of that temptation, friends. And let's remind ourselves that when we prioritize Scripture, whether it's in a sermon, or in family devotions, or in discipling your kids, or in evangelizing your neighbors, whenever we prioritize Scripture, we are putting ourselves in the path of the Holy Spirit's power. Word and Spirit together in God's economy. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He testifies to the authoritative word of Jesus Christ and that testimony comes down to us in the scriptures. We're going to conclude we're going to conclude this morning where we started. And that's with the Spirit's role of glorifying the Son. 
So listen again to verses 14 and 15 as we get ready to close. Verse 14. The Spirit will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That's a, that's a wonderful text. That's a snapshot of the Trinitarian life of God. How kind of God to let us see behind the curtain of how he is within himself. This little snapshot of the Trinitarian life of God. The Father reveals all to the Son, since the Son is the Word of God. And the Son, in turn, reveals all to the Spirit, so that each person of the Trinity has the fullness of knowing one another. And from that Trinitarian community of knowing one another, the Father and Son and Spirit extend their glory to us in the life of God's people. The the Spirit declares to us what He has heard from the Son and the Father. That might sound a bit abstract to you, but in that Trinitarian community, in that Trinitarian community is the reason we exist. Why are you here? Why do you live? Why do you exist? You exist to know God and make Him known. And that Trinitarian economy is reminding you that that's why you exist. What has God been doing for all eternity? The Father sharing the fullness with the Son, the Son sharing the fullness with the Spirit, so that in the fullness of time, the Son would come and reveal the Father through the Spirit so that we would know God. That's why we exist. To know God and make Him known. In John 16, that's why Jesus sends the Helper, so that we will know more of the Father through the Son in the Spirit. And brothers and sisters, what I want to close with, what I want you to take out with you today, is that that knowing God is the Spirit-filled life. You You want the Holy Spirit's power in your life? Know God through His Word. That's the spirit-filled life. We don't need to chase unusual spiritual experiences to know God's power. We certainly do not need fresh revelations of truth. We've received the fullness of truth in Jesus Christ. What we need, the reason we exist, is to know God through His Word, inspired by the Spirit, leading us to the Son. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He glorifies the Son to the praise of the Father, Let's join in that ministry. Amen? Let's pray.